Uh, it's interesting to note that on the infected um, animals that were born, uh, microcephaly is just uh, one of the symptoms that we see. We actually see um, a stronger impact of the Zika virus in, in different tissues. I'm Scott Lafee for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. And I'm Heather Bushman. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, that buzzing in the background is a hint, we're talking about the Zika virus, an emerging epidemic that has fears running high in Latin America and beyond. Scott, it seems like all of a sudden, even in maybe just the last year, we're hearing about Zika virus everywhere. Did it just pop up out of nowhere? No, actually, in fact, the Zika virus has been a subject of study for a while. It's just that nobody thought until relatively recently that it posed such a dire health threat to humans, especially unborn humans. So when did the virus first appear? Well, the full story goes back to 1947 and some research in Uganda's Zika forest. Scientists there were studying the yellow fever virus using rhesus monkeys as test subjects, and one of those monkeys, known as number 766, fell ill with a high fever, but they couldn't figure out the cause until they uncovered a previously unknown virus, which ultimately got its name from the forest where it was discovered. Hmm. Oh, wow. So Zika isn't new at all then. Why wasn't it a big deal back then in the 20th century? Well, that first episode prompted further study, but the results were sporadic and limited, and it was concluded that the virus was carried by infected mosquitoes who transmitted it to humans through their bite, but because the symptoms were typically mild, maybe even non-existent, Zika wasn't considered a significant health threat. What are the symptoms? Well, they're pretty much flu-like, mild fever, rash, uh, that tends to go away in a few days. And, and when did Zika start becoming a major health threat? Not until a major outbreak in the Yap Islands, which are north of Australia in 2007, which was followed by another outbreak in French Polynesia in 2013. That's when doctors and scientists took note of an alarming consequence. The Zika virus could generate serious symptoms in some people, including life-threatening neurological disorders. And now we've got a major Zika problem. Exactly. That's what's happening in Brazil and other parts of South and Central America in this past year, where the virus has spread, and which is really underscores the nature and alarm of this emerging health threat. Yeah, and when you say life-threatening neurological disorders, what worries me the most, and I think most people, is that the CDC and many others have concluded that Zika virus infection is linked to microcephaly, and that's a, a condition in which babies are born with abnormally small brains and, and small heads. And that worry has led to a lot of anxiety about the upcoming Olympics in Brazil as well. Um, you know, several athletes have said they're not even going to participate. People are really worried about what a huge influx of people into that infected area will do for the spread of this virus and the increasing incidences of microcephaly. That's one of the big challenges, Zika, and it's also a major recent advance, is proving that the virus actually causes microcephaly, that it's not just a vague association. That advance actually happened here at UC San Diego School of Medicine, where Dr. Alice Motri and colleagues published a recent Nature paper with the first direct experimental proof that Zika causes severe birth defects. There has been a strong 
association between the Zika infection and uh, the birth defect, especially the microcephaly cases in Brazil. Uh, but this association was uh, uh, not based on hard empirical experimental evidence. Uh, instead, it's just a, a clinical association with epidemiological facts. So what we did was um, first set up experimental models, and we use animal models as well as uh, brain organoids in a dish uh, to really prove causation that the Zika virus can not only cross through the placenta, but infect the fetus and attack the neuroprogenitor cells causing microcephaly and other types of birth defects. Motri says his research suggests that the health threat may even be broader and more worrisome than microcephaly. Uh, it's interesting to note that on the infected um, animals that were born, uh, microcephaly is just uh, one of the symptoms that we see. We actually see um, a stronger impact of the Zika virus in, in different tissues um, to a condition that is probably uh, related to uh, intrauterine uh, arrest, growth arrest, where the entire body, all the tissues in the animals have some kind of uh, problems. So it's clear that Zika causes microcephaly and maybe a lot of other problems. The next thing for scientists to know is how. If researchers can determine the exact molecular interactions and processes involved, they might be able to find points of attack that could blunt, inhibit, even prevent viral infection. Yep, and I recently spoke with Dr. Tarek Rana, professor in the UC San Diego School of Medicine, about his studies on this. Dr. Rana and his team are using 3D models of human brains very similar to those that Dr. Motri uses, and their model brains specifically mimic first trimester human brains based on their gene expression and cell development patterns. What have they found so far? Well, five days after their experiments, those brain organoids that are the healthy ones, the control group that have only been mock infected, had grown an average of 22.6%, similar to a developing human fetal brain. In contrast, the Zika-infected organoids had decreased in size by an average 16%. And they attributed this to TLR3, toll-like receptor 3. That's a molecule human cells normally use to defend against invading viruses. Here's how Dr. Rana describes it. Yeah, so what we learned is that when Zika infects, it activates TLR3. So this is a, like a sensor on the surface of all cells, most of the cells, which senses viral infections. And so it <clears throat> interacts with that, and it's turned on specific genes inside the cell. And here's the clincher, how Zika-activating TLR3 seems to inhibit neonatal brain development, causing microcephaly and other birth defects. So what we found is that when TLR3 is activated by Zika, it turns on two sets of genes. One which starts to kill stem cells, and the second one is that stem cells fail to specify into different parts of the brain. And what's more, Dr. Rana's team is already testing methods for blocking this interaction between Zika virus and TLR3 as a means to develop new therapeutics aimed at blunting the virus's devastating effect. So when we added TLR3 inhibitors in our 3D model, shrinkage of these small brain cells were less and they were healthier than untreated, even though they weren't perfect. This is exciting because this gives us some clues that this could be a pathway forward to come up with small molecules which could be used to inhibit Zika viral infections. 
That's really cool. I'm looking forward to seeing how these basic research studies progress. Of course, the ultimate goal is translating that knowledge into new treatments of Zika infections or preventing them altogether. What's happening on that front? A lot of people are focused on this, including folks here. I talked to Jair Sekiro-Neto, assistant professor in the Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at UC San Diego. For him, he's originally from Brazil. His work on Zika is also personal. Close family members of his have been infected with the virus, and he sees how it's devastating his own country. So Sekiro Neto is participating in a new drug discovery project led by IBM's World Community Grid called Open Zika. It's a crowdsourced project in which citizen scientists can download an app and that allows them to donate their unused computing power to the search for new potential Zika treatments. Here's Dr. Sekiro Neto to explain. Yeah, so the Open Zika project, uh, you would get people sitting from the world with a computer or Android device and they will donate uh, their computing power so we can model the viral proteins and test millions of compounds to see which ones are able to inhibit uh, or to affect the viral proteins. So after all this test is done in computers, we will end up with a number of candidates, uh, drug candidates, and my role in this project would be actually testing all these compounds in real experimental conditions using cells and the virus to check which ones indeed are showing antiviral activity. So with all these candidate compounds that we select from the OpenZika project, uh, we'll test them here in our screening platform at the Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at UC San Diego. Um, so here we have a number of instruments um, uh, equipped with automation, so we are able to screen millions of compounds in the real experimental condition, uh, and that will right away tell us which of the candidate compounds are indeed showing uh, antiviral activity. And these chemical compounds that are found to inhibit Zika virus, will they become the new drugs to treat the infection? It will still be a long road of optimization and testing before promising compounds identified by the Open Zika project could be used as a therapeutic in humans. But the project team is certainly doing everything they can to accelerate that process. Here's Sekiro Neto again. So with these compounds that we will find from the Zika project, we make them all publicly available. So basically we're sharing these compounds with the entire scientific community and that will accelerate the process until we get these compounds to real drugs uh, and reach the people in need. Anyone who'd like to participate in OpenZika by donating their unused computer power can sign up at worldcommunitygrid.org. Thanks, I'll check that out. I'm still amazed at how quickly research on Zika virus has progressed in such a short time. It's almost like, at least here at UC San Diego, that we've gone from zero to 60 in a matter of a couple of months. I know, it's truly remarkable and a testament to what bright minds in a collaborative spirit can achieve. That concludes our episode. For N equals one, I'm Heather. And I'm Scott, thanks for joining us.